This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 14. Episode 30. This is Writing Excuses and eating your way to better world building. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Piper J. Drake. I'm Dong Wan. I'm Amal. I'm Maurice Broadus. You're laughing. I'm already laughing. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be so much fun. Okay, so along the lines of our title, which is Eating Your Way to Better World Building, Dong Wan, I'm going to totally put you on the spot. Uh, so I really like to talk about food. Uh, if you've ever met me, I do it pretty much incessantly. It's, me too, me too. It's, a, it's an obsession. And I think it's an obsession for pretty much all of us. Yeah. Um, yes. And one of the reasons I like to talk about that is, um, in particular, I come from an immigrant family. Both my parents are immigrants. And food is one of the main ways I relate to culture. Um, both the culture that my parents come from, the culture of the South, where I was raised and went to school, and You know, I live in New York City, which is where I get to interface with so many different cultures, primarily through eating the many, many delicious things that they make. I love to see this reflected in fiction and not just the world that we exist in, in in our own bodies. Fun fact, uh, I decided that Don Juan should be my agent based on the fact that he talked about food in really (laughs) specific ways. In addition to his many other very fine qualities, like he is, in fact, a very good agent, uh, I had been stalking him on Twitter for a while, uh, in part because he telegraphed all of these recipes that he was doing and stuff. But there was one moment in particular where we were having our first kind of tentative conversation of do we want to work together, and he gave me this really amazing, mind-blowing insight into the ways in which... uh, like immigrants bring their food to new places, uh, which, I mean, I can say it right now. I think it's germane to the conversation. Um, so I am used to thinking about immigrants moving around the world and bringing their food with them, and the way that that food changes is dependent on uh, the available ingredients, right? So you can't find the stuff that you use to make your food back home, so you adapt and you use different things. What Dong Wan pointed out was that that's not the only variable in the food changing. The other variable is time, and that when immigrants come, their food becomes kind of time-locked in the moment when they immigrated, so that different waves of immigration can have very different, uh, very different foods, and that you might, if, uh, for instance, my family uh, immigrated from Lebanon, uh, the food that I am used to thinking of as Lebanese food might be very different from the food that I now find in Lebanon because cuisines are constantly changing and adapting and so on, but there's a kind of time lock that happens to it in place. I'd never thought of this before, and because Dongwon clearly was thinking along lines that were just revelatory to me in the way that I think about food and culture and the way I move through the world and inheritance and all sorts of stuff. I was like, yeah, this, this guy here, he's got to be my agent. <laughs> my mind is currently blown right now because my parents are from Thailand and what I grew up thinking of as Thai cooking or just home cooking um, is very, very different from what you would find in Thailand now. For example, there's plenty of people who have been linking me on social media like Facebook on the rolled ice cream dealio. 
I never encountered that as a child going in Thailand when I was there in the summers. So I was like, I have no idea what this thing is. They're like, you should. It's from Thailand. And I'm like, (laughs) I would love to try it. But it was never there while I was a kid. Um, Koreans have recently discovered cheese. And they are so (laughs) excited about it. It's on everything right now. I find it horrifying. I don't think it it goes with Korean flavors at all. But you go to Korea and they're eating it on everything. Whereas for me, the food that I think of as Korean food is like New York Korean food. Hmm. Which is a very specific region and time and all those things combined. So I have a kind of complicated family structure. So I was born in London. Um, My mother was born in Jamaica. My father was born here in the States. So we have these three sort of cultures are always kind of clashed every Sunday and every Sunday afternoon because we would always have family dinner together. (laughs) So we'd always have to have food that represented each culture as we came to, to sit down for family meals. Um, which is great if you ever came over to our house to eat because you all of a sudden you have this big smorgasbord of food to choose from. But for, uh, but for us, eating became this um, centering element. So eating for us was always a sense of home, mm-hmm. um, which then, you know, moving forward becomes really interesting in, our, in my, my personal family since I'm, I'm married interracially and I'm also the main cook in, in the family mm-hmm. due to some of my own early mistakes in the relationship. <laughs> <laughs> so, again... Me and my wife are fine. <laughs> but in our first year of marriage, you know, she had, had it in her head. She, oh, wow, this is what an ideal marriage would look like. So she would, you know, I'd come home, she'd make these meals, and the meals would be waiting for me. And then I decided to make a joke. This was a solid joke. I swear this was solid. I came home, I, I said, hey, honey. I'm so stressed right now. I know, we're making right. faces. Right. I, said, I said, hey, this, your cooking could be considered a hate crime. <gasps> In my head, this sounded like such a solid joke. Where's the joke? Dongwan has fallen off the table. He should have been providing better instruction. He waved me off of this one. Um, So for the next 13 years, I became the main cook in the family. But it worked. Sounds like just desserts. Right, right. Yeah, that happened. I can't believe that's documented for posterity. Dong Wan Song made a pun. Right. I'm very tired. Oh, this is good. <laughs> oh, but but it's, it's actually worked out great across the board because I'm a foodie person and I love food, as demonstrated during the course of this trip. I love food. And it has allowed me to just experiment with things and to provide different tastes, even though I know my, for well, my children are going to be on board with this, but it provides a touch point for me and my wife. It provides a touch point for when my family comes to visit. Um, learning all these different dishes in order to create a sense of home for whenever anyone comes to visit our house. Mm-hmm. Speaking of sense of home, so one of the things that reviewers have called out in some of my books, obviously, is the fact that I have a tendency to mention food and that they should never read my books without having had a meal first or they will immediately go out and eat. Um, but one of the things that I uh, brought up and a reviewer really, really felt close to was uh, in absolute trust. Uh, Sophie tends to share her foods with her friends. And she is Korean-American, um, and she's just saying, you know what, this isn't a traditional meal. This is just a co- an amalgamation of all my comfort foods. And she's sharing them. And what it really struck a chord with with a reviewer was that growing up, she didn't or was hesitant to share her foods with friends because friends thought it was weird or mm-hmm. it smelled weird or it was pungent when you brought it into school or brought it into work. Is that something that you've seen in books in particular? And do you think it should be shared more often? Is that something good, bad? What do you think? I mean, I'm reminded of 
a different podcast. Is it, is it okay to mention other podcasts on the podcast? Yeah, I think uh, so. Right? <laughs> there was a podcast. Yes, we have not. Yay. Um, there was, sadly, it's, it's sort of on hiatus now, but, uh, there was a podcast called Rocket Talk on Tor.com that Justin Landon did, and he would often interview people. And I, I'm pretty sure it was Rocket Talk. There was a conversation about, foods and epic novels and how how bored the I can't I, I can't remember who else was on the podcast now but they were talking about how boring it was to have feasts described and and like the 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 registers of food and epic fantasies seem to either be enormous feast or stew and it was just like this, this ubiquity of stew everywhere um and I just feel like every that's always a missed opportunity. Like, all of these things that we're talking about, like, there are so many things that you do with food, with feeding. Like, feeding and eating are such central metaphors. So why not use it to share everything about a character and, like, the fact that you couldn't when you were growing up and now you want to because it's where all of these deep, tense anxieties of your soul are centered? Well, when I think about those feast scenes in in fiction, I actually quite like scenes where people eat food, and I like these feast scenes because they're often an opportunity to see a lot of characters interact, and people love descriptions of food. Where I have a problem is this is where my nerdiness gets away with me because there'll be a very Western-oriented fantasy in a medieval setting, and everyone's eating potatoes. And I'm like, those didn't <laughs> exist in Europe at that point in yeah. time. Those are a new world ingredient. Or they're on the road on some grand epic adventure hunting through the wilderness, and they stop to make a stew, which takes hours and hours to make, hmm. using resources that they probably didn't have at the time. Or they're only eating rabbits. And here's an interesting <laughs> fact that I really love is there's a thing called rabbit starvation. This is what happened to trappers. What? If you only eat rabbits, it takes more calories to burn the meat than it gives you. They're so like celery? They're because like they're celery. Lean. Like rabbits are celery. Rabbits are so lean. But and wait, they were they actually eating the eyes? Because that is a really good calorie source. Uh, maybe they should be, have been eating the rabbit eyes. This mm-hmm. I don't actually know. But there's not enough of the proteins in there to have the enzymes for you to digest the meat properly. So you will actually starve to death if all you eat is rabbits. So oh every God. time Samwise Gamgee shows up with a brace of rabbits and potatoes, I get mad. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's pedantic, but to me it's really important because food has history. Food comes from places. And uh, food reflects things about the way we move through the world. So until we explored the new world and brought potatoes to Europe, that was an ingredient that we didn't have. If your world has potatoes in it, that means there is sea exploration in a way that implies a whole nother depth to your world that you may not have considered if it's not there initially. Mm -hmm. All right. Hang on. One more time. What was the question? I do this a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So I was asking about whether or not or how you felt about um, including the sharing of food, especially if it's your character's home cooking Mm -hmm. and what kind of thoughts or memories that evoke. Um, Well, there's a couple because like. There's I, even on this trip, I've been reflecting on, on you know, different sort of food memories that, that we have. Um, and so, like, uh, at one point, I felt the need. I had to have some beans and rice, and I had to have some plantains. And these are foods that um, I took for granted uh, when my mom fixed them every week. Um, but now it, it, I just was like, oh, no, I feel the need to have them. But on the flip side, there are foods I want no part of. Um, and I, and one of them was ackee and saltfish because my mom would make that every Saturday morning. And it has this odor that would fill the house. 
And, and, and the whole idea of being embarrassed to, have, to share that, I mean, I'm like, I can't have my friends over, spend the night because my mom's going to fix ackee and saltfish and it's just going to stink up the whole house. And, you know, what are they going to think about me? Um, and the same thing with chitlins because <laughs> Oh, chitlins. chitlins. <laughs> but they know me. They saw Nami. Sure. Yes. Yeah. But I see, I was I mean, also I, scarred early on because my, I, there was one time when my grandmother was fixing chitlins and then... What are chitlins? What are chitlins? I don't know what chitlins are. Let's just say they're, they're innards. They're what? They're intestines. large intestines. Oh, okay. Or small right. intestines? Right. I get confused. Anyways. They're part of the intestines and you will find out that Piper will eat very, very... Well, let's just say there are very few things in this world that I won't eat. Right. Fair. Yeah. But I've, when my I've, grandmother I've, was cleaning them... Because you have to clean them first. And then it produces a sort of, I don't know, there was a sheen to her hands <laughs> and a stink to the process. And then she would like, come give grandma a <laughs> 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 You know, that's going to put me off an entire, you know, yes. That, so things happen. Testicular sheen feels like a term now in well, my head, which I intestinal? didn't ever think Intestinal? Intestinal. intestinal. Sorry, you said, you said intestinal, and I heard testicle. Those are Rocky Mountain oysters. That's <laughs> different. Yes. Rocky Mountain Sorry. oysters, different food type. Never mind. But on that note... Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's go to the book of the week. <laughs> so the book of the week just happens to be a cookbook. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're going to talk about... <laughs> if I can stop laughing. We're going to talk about A Feast of Ice and Fire, the official Game of Thrones companion cookbook. And this is by... And I apologize. They're, they're not here to correct me on name pronunciation, so I may mess this up. Chelsea Monroe Castle and Sarianne Lehrer, I believe... And uh, the reason why I recommended this is because I really have a lot of great memories associated with this cookbook. Um, I probably got this cookbook before I really watched Game of Thrones and really read the book. But the thing I loved about it was that it not only has recipes that are historically accurate or recipes from their historical research, but it has a contemporary um adjustment, I guess you could say, or remake of the same recipe. So you have the two options. And what was kind of funny as I was going through it was I actually preferred the historical preparation hmm. and presentation more than I liked the modern. So it's it's just a really cool cookbook to go through. It does have a forward by George R.R. R. Martin. and um, But I think really I was more focused on the food because the food looks fantastic, has pictures, etc. And they talk about the historical research behind the recipes. Hmm. So... When we think about food and fiction, what are the things that are hallmarks for you of when somebody gets it right in terms of including food, a, a, a different dish or a cultural dish in, in presenting either an alien race or a fictional fantasy culture or something along those lines? How they get it right? <laughs> or where they go off the rails? Um, oh, gosh, I got to go first on this. <laughs> um, how they, like, hallmarks of how they get it right is when it, it matters to a character. Because that's why you remember a particular dish. Whether it's a good memory or a bad memory, it matters to a character. And I want to know why. Not just what's in the dish, but 
But what is it about the cooking of it? Is it a communal cooking effort? Is it for a particular purpose? Does it bring together memories? I mean, Maurice shared that awesome memory about, you know, the preparation on Saturday nights for Sunday morning. Like that kind of thing is a fantastic memory and it's character building and it's world building. It tells you about culture. It tells you about everything from the large to the, to the detailed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's a fantastic way to do it. One of the things that I don't like is when somebody's like, so we got a soup stone and we got some wild onions and we threw (laughs) some protein in there and it made this delicious stew. Hooray. Then why did, like, how did that do anything for character building or plot except show that they ate? There's an expression that my dad uses for when food is just basically adequate. uh, And it's just, you know, it's fine. He says, hash with misran which is relevant to what we were just talking about because it just translates literally to intestine stuffing. Uh, So I feel like there's... Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm recovering from that moment. Uh, But but I think it it applies to this. And like, are the descriptions of food in your book hashwit masran or are they actually nourishing? Are they something that, that is providing something in the narrative that is going to serve a purpose. And by purpose here, I don't mean plot mechanics, although that would be awesome. I would love to read a book where the plot hinged on food. Like, that would be great. Uh, but more just what you're describing, Weber. Like, I remember this, this one scene in a book that I don't like very much. Uh, there's, there's, I'm not, ah, it's an ocean at the end of the lane. I don't like that book very much. Um, but there's a moment in that book uh, where the, the main character is a little boy, and he has been eating terrible food, like um, the kind of cold porridge, grimy badness sort of thing. And he's suddenly in this home where he's given warm toasted bread and butter and jam. And the, the memory of the description of this book that lingers with me is going from cold gray darkness to warm golden light. And even though I don't like the book very much, that one thing about the book has totally stayed with me because it was this experience of food locked to all the other experiences the character was having and and, and the experience the character had, this joy in this unbelievable, almost painful simplicity uh, was enormous. So there's a couple different things. So one, I like the, the ritual of food. Um, the, from the from the moment of preparation to how it's presented and then how it's consumed. There, for me, uh, there's a, a ritual about it. And the more that there's a, a ritual, the more that that, that meal has meaning. Um, I, I love when I read scene, scenes like that. Um, but the other thing for me in terms of world building is, you know, what does the food say about the, the world itself? Um, and so, like, for me, I have trouble dieting, for example, because whenever I diet, as soon as my belly grumbles from, you know, trying to cut down on calories, what triggers is, you know, I have a lack of food. I don't know if I'm going to have my next meal. You know, I have all these sort of, it's like a poverty throwback mm-hmm. uh, to when, when we lived in a much more uh, food insecure, you know, growing mm-hmm. up wise. Um, and so it becomes, so it's almost like a di- diets for me trigger that. which may, So then it actually has the opposite effect, which is I must eat now. So I can feel like I'm secure in having a meal again. Um, and so and I say all that because, you know, I, I love it when stories reflect upon that in, on, in, in the greater world. It's like, so we have these meals. All right. So if we have this, you know, huge, you know, uh, rich, you know, banquet of food. All right. So we, we obviously live in a wealthy, wealthy culture. If we are having food of opportunity, hmm. that says something else about the culture. And I love those little shadings and, and when people bring that out uh, in their work. 
There's something I kind of want to highlight too that we almost never think about in terms of food. So we're talking a lot about where food comes from, its provenance, kind of reflecting that in world building. I don't think we tend to think about food production very much. Mm. And this is a hole that I would love to help fill for everyone by recommending a Twitter account and a podcast. Uh, Dr. Sarah Tabor on Twitter is someone who absolutely everyone should follow. She's magnificent. And she has a podcast called Farm to Tabor, which is great. A great title. <laughs> uh, and she, she works, uh, I mean, she has worked on farms. She's worked in the agricultural industry in the United States. But she has a wonderful sense of where uh, food production and food standards intersect with world building. So where, for instance, why, why is it that uh, in some places you raise cattle instead of raising crops? Well, perhaps it's because in those places, all it's too arid to actually grow crops that sustain human beings and the only vegetation that is edible is edible by animals. So you get your cattle to eat the rough, terrible things that you can't actually digest and then you eat the cattle. There is a logic to it and there's a kind of land management aspect of it that I, like, it blew my mind to start thinking about. I never had thought about it before. So it's, I think, part and parcel of thinking about things like empire and colonialism, all the stuff that we think about just on the regular. <laughs> All of us, obviously, all think about that yes. on the regular. We do. Um, and class and power and, and privilege. And class and power and privilege. Thinking about food production it can often be um, a, a, just kind of a missing link in the ways in which we, we talk about these things. So she's a great place to start. It's a truly brilliant podcast. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's one of my sort of top three right now. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned going off the rails, I'm not excited for the future. Oh. Because <laughs> people don't eat well in the future. I mean, all the food seems to be either like this weird mush type thing that people are eating or like we got pills <laughs> and like that's what I have to look forward to. Well, I think about two things in terms of like food and science fiction. Um, and on the one end, you have Star Trek, right, mm -hmm. where you sort of have replicators and they're just reproducing very sort of Western style foods. And then you have the way that Klingon food is presented. Huh. And this is the thing that bothers me because it's very one dimensional. Um, Klingons presented as this violent species and therefore the violent foods. If the food is living, it's bugs, it's worms, it moves. And it's played for the sense of horror from the Federation officers who have to go to diplomatic dinners with Klingons or whatever it is. Except in this one really beautiful moment in Deep Space Nine that I really like, which is why Deep Space Nine is the only Star Trek I actually like. Right. You can all yell at me later. I see um, fists being shaken in the audience. Exactly. <laughs> and then there's this beat where Dr. Bashir takes a, a date to this Klingon food stall and it's just presented as this delightful moment that they share their love of Klingon food and he's just slurping up worms and it's just like <laughs> this really, it's played for laughs in some ways, but it's also this really endearing scene of like, oh, this is a guy who's lived in a multicultural environment. He's lived in a place where Klingons lived, learned to eat their food, and can order in their language, and just loves doing it. And it just, to me, I was like, oh, he's a New Yorker, right? This is what we do. We go <laughs> down to the ball fields and order food, or we go to the food courts, or whatever it is, and you order the thing that you're excited to try, huh. and the thing that you know how to order it. And um, I find that to be two different models of the way in which we can look at food from other cultures and food in the future, um, the Expanse also does this really well. They, they have mm -hmm. done a great job of not only mingling languages, but then mingling cuisines and then giving them new names, right? And so you get a mm -hmm. sense that the Martians eat a certain way, the Belters eat a certain way. Right. And those things are, they often talk about how they're like things that sound horrible in some ways, that they're like yeast products or they're grown <laughs> in oh. space environments. But then you can feel the cultural roots of how they're using those, those products mm -hmm. and those soy products and yeast products, whatever it is. So 
food in the future can be depressing, but I think if we apply our imagination a little bit more and make it rooted in the cultures of who's actually going to space, and if we make sure that the futures we envision aren't just white Americans going into space, yeah. then maybe the food will be a little bit more palatable. <laughs> hey, palatable? Food. palatable? Street food? What we call street food once it hits space? We'll have to have space streets. Space streets? Space street food. Definitely. Or space markets? Yeah. yeah. Space markets. I have two quick recs on food and space. Uh, two things that came to mind were uh, my favorite thing that Alan Moore ever wrote called The Ballad of Halo Jones. Um, it's, it's an amazing book. It's one of his very early things, and there is a really cool food thing that I will get into later. But the other one is uh, Max Gladstone has a book coming out next year called Empress of Forever. Is that the title now? Yes. Uh, Empress of Forever. And a, there's a lot of culture hopping there, and in every one it feels like there's an introduction based in food and rooted mm-hmm. in hospitality and uh, cultural exchange and stuff like that. And it is the future, probably. It's space. Uh, It is definitely the future. It's definitely the future, (laughs) yes. Uh, And it's really great. Okay, so we've talked a lot, and I'm very hungry now, um, about eating your way to a better world building. Uh, So now it's time to talk about homework. Dongwon? So the homework is I would like you all to imagine a fictional meal. Imagine uh, a meal that your characters are eating in a fantasy world, in a science fictional world, um, and... Describe the history of that meal. What does it mean to the family who is eating it? Where do the ingredients come from? What are the cultures that led to it? And then write a sort of mini story that just tracks the way this particular meal came together and what things came about because of certain cultures or certain ingredients or certain availabilities, certain restrictions led to that particular meal happening for those characters at that moment. Okay. And... There's a thought. No, no. You didn't have a thought. No, I didn't. I don't remember how to finish. This has been been writing excuses. (laughs) Sorry. I I was going to do it, but you're the one doing it. I I don't know. Um, This this has been writing excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. That was the thing. You can cut that out if you want. Now go write. All right, we're done. (laughs) This episode of Writing Excuses was engineered by Bert Grimm and mastered by Alex Jackson. It was recorded in front of a live audience at the Writing Excuses Retreat 2018 at Sea. Your hosts for this episode are Piper J. Drake, Dongwon Song, Amal El Motar, and Maurice Broadus. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.